On the road again, President Biden struggles to sell his economic vision. The lead starts right now. Needing to convince Americans that he can help them, President Biden this afternoon touting his massive agenda, but it's still stalled by his own party. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki is here. A vote by an FDA advisory panel just minutes ago to approve booster shots for millions more Americans as new data clearly shows a shot can literally be a matter of life or death. Plus, a British lawmaker killed after being stabbed multiple times while meeting with voters. We're live on the scene. Hello and welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We start this hour in our politics lead. President Biden promising to slash childcare costs for working class families. He's visiting Connecticut today, pitching this proposal and others as part of his far-reaching spending plans on programs such as expanding Medicare or free community college tuition. Currently, that bill is in jeopardy back home in Washington, D.C. That social safety net package has stalled again as moderate Democratic senators disagree with progressives with no compromise in sight. As CNN's Phil Mattingly reports, President Biden plans to spend his weekend negotiating. President Biden hitting the road and the playground to unlock his stalled agenda. Too many folks in Washington still don't realize it isn't enough just to invest in our physical infrastructure. We also have to invest in our people. Seeking to rally support for the critical child care component of his dual-pronged and currently frozen multi-trillion dollar package. Both bills, they're not about left versus right. They're not about, uh, you know, moderate versus progressive. Facing criticism for not selling that agenda, Biden using public remarks in Connecticut to press the urgency of the moment. These bills, in my view, are literally about competitiveness versus complacency. While privately, top advisors have made clear they've grown increasingly impatient with the pace of the talks. As two key moderate Democrats, Senators Joe Manchin of West Virginia and Kirsten Sinema from Arizona, remain on the fence. My number's been 1.5. Neither senator committing to a top-line price tag, which White House officials have sought to keep at roughly $2 trillion. Sinema privately insisting on a vote on the bipartisan $1.2 trillion Senate-passed infrastructure proposal first, a non-starter for House progressives. Manchin, sources say, has laid out a series of issues across the package, from the scale of the paid leave and free community college proposals to an expansion of Medicare. And the coal state Democrat sharply opposed to many of the proposed climate measures. Biden has spoken to both this week, according to officials, and talks remain ongoing. As the calendar ticks toward the end of the year, two critical dates are consuming Democrats. The October 31st expiration of surface transportation funding, an unofficial deadline of sorts, and the November 2nd Virginia governor's race, where pressure is mounting to pass the infrastructure proposal. I hope the House will get that to President Biden's desk ASAP. It will really help here. With Democrats increasingly concerned, inaction could have electoral consequences. We will get both done, I'm confident. Obviously, the sooner we can get one and then the other done, the better for people and the better for this race in Virginia. And Jake, while the president made his public pitch today, for the last several days, White House officials have been engaged in intensive negotiations with the key outstanding lawmakers, really granular negotiations over each specific piece of the president's plan, trying to close out those issues. To some degree, it's part of the legislative process, particularly a legislative process dealing with something this wide in scale and scope. However, White House officials have made clear time in this case is not unlimited. Decisions need to be made soon, Jake.
All right, Phil Mattingly at the White House, thank you. I want to bring in the White House Press Secretary, Jen Psaki, to discuss. Jen, thanks so much uh, for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Hi, Jake. Great to be here. So how problematic will it be for Democrats if you are unable to pass both the infrastructure bill and the social safety net packages before Christmas? Won't that show voters that Democrats are not able to govern? Well, Jake, we absolutely plan on getting these both of these packages done, passed into law, signed, and starting to get the impacts out to the American people. Uh, we have some time. I know people are doing some Christmas shopping now, but we have more than two months between now and Christmas. And I, I will tell you, though, that the president feels there's an urgency in moving the, these things forward. We need to get to a unified approach so that we can get these things passed into law. And I think you've heard us say that over the past couple of days, and that's what people should know out there. So Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin, the two moderate uh, Democratic senators um, who object to what a lot of the progressives want in that bill, the $3.5 uh, trillion social safety net uh, package, uh, they say they have made it clear to the White House what they want, how far they're willing to go. And I guess my question is, is there even a middle ground? Does it even exist? Of course there is, Jake. We're optimists by nature here. The president is. I am. And we believe this is going to be a compromise that we're going to get done. It is always true that at this stage in the process, the later stage of negotiating, you're into the granular details, as Phil just outlined in, in, his, in his interview with you a few minutes ago. That is absolutely true. That's what we're doing right now. A lot of that is happening privately. The president's on the phone with these senators and other senators and other members of Congress. We're talking to leadership. We're talking to staffs and committees. People don't always see that in public, uh, we know, but that's important work that's happening behind the scenes. At the same time, the president's also out there selling this package, conveying to the American people his commitment to absolutely getting this done, and that's what you heard him say today. Well, let's talk about that salesmanship, because a CNN poll this week asked Americans how these two bills would affect their families, their view of that. Only a quarter of those polled said that the bills would leave them better off. Only a quarter. 32% said they'd be worse off. 43% said they would not be affected. I want to highlight some of the key demographics in this last group. Nearly 6 in 10 African-Americans say they will not be affected by the president's economic agenda. Half of Latino voters, 6 in 10 independent women, more than half of people under age 35, half of moderates. You get the picture. The White House has not convinced the very voters who empirically would be helped by these trillions of dollars in proposed spending. There's a real communication problem here. Well, here's what we know, Jake, and and this is the good news. Um, When people talk about the need to make universal pre-K a reality, three-quarters of the public supports that. When we talk about the importance of making sure people have clean drinking water, vast majority, Democrats and Republicans, support that. Rebuilding roads, rails, and bridges, same thing. Uh, Ensuring we're making prescription drugs less expensive, uh, cutting the cost of prescription drugs by negotiating through Medicare, hugely popular. So what we are going to be talking about more is the components of these packages. It is true, you're right, and your poll showed this. Everybody doesn't know what Build Back Better means for them, but they do know they like clean drinking water, they like good roads, they like universal pre-K and child care, uh, they like paid leave. Those are all the pieces that you're going to hear the president out there talking more and more about in the, in the days and weeks ahead. It personally feels like I've heard progressives bashing Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin more than I've heard progressives, not all, but some, uh, talking about what's in the bill. 
there there has been a focus i would say jake here in washington sometimes this happens in the zip code we all operate and work in on the mechanics and the mechanisms of getting this legislation forward there is an urgency the vast majority of people in congress are feeling in getting this done the president feels that urgency too but it is also true that the more all of us every democrat who supports clean drinking water roads rails and bridges and rebuilding them uh, universal pre-k paid leave the more we talk about that the more the public knows how we're trying to make government work for them, the better off we all are. Well, you're a little bit more disciplined than some of your fellow Democrats, I'll say. Inflation is skyrocketing, as I don't need to tell you. The prices for home heating costs, cars, groceries, furniture, rent, gasoline are, are hitting Americans right in the wallet. The, the White House response has been generally to say, hey, inflation shows that we're coming out of the recession, so it's a good sign. President Biden's chief of staff, Ron Klain, enthusiastically retweeted an economist who had said in part most of the economic problems we're facing, inflation, supply chains, et cetera, are high-class problems. Now, I get the larger point that when we're talking about economics, we're coming out of a recession. But doesn't it seem tone-deaf to say that rising prices and empty grocery store shelves are high-class problems? Isn't that a bit dismissive? Well, that's not exactly what the tweet said, nor the retweet of the original tweet, uh, which is what we're talking about here. It is true, though, Jake, and economists will tell you this, and I know you've interviewed some of them as well, that the fact is the unemployment rate is about half what it was a year ago. So a year ago, people were in their homes, 10% of people were unemployed, gas prices were low because nobody was driving, people weren't buying goods because they didn't have jobs. Now more people have jobs, more people are buying goods, that's increasing the demand. That's a good thing. At the same time, we also know that the supply is low because we're coming out of the pandemic. Uh, and because a bunch of manufacturing sectors across the world have shut down because ports uh, haven't been functioning as they should be. These are all things we're working through. What people should know is that inflation is going to come down next year. Economists have said that. They're all projecting that. But we're working to attack these cost issues that are impacting the American people every single day. But there's different issues in different sectors and, and many of the ones you mentioned. Well, Chief of Staff Ron Klain, back when he was a private citizen in 2018 on Twitter, he went after the Trump White House for efforts to dismiss rising prices. Klain asked if Vice President Pence would do what then-Commerce Secretary Ross did and, quote, hold up a Campbell's soup can and argue that price increases for basic food items really don't hurt the middle class, unquote. There are a lot of people out there who might say, well, why did Ron Klain think that rising prices was a serious concern under Trump and not under Biden? I can tell you from sitting in a lot of meetings with Ron Klain day in and day out, he is obsessed with lowering costs for the American people, and that's driven from the president. And how we're approaching that is we're trying to increase competition in the agricultural sector. We're working to get ports up and running, which is an announcement we made earlier this week. We're working with labor unions, with industry leaders to make sure that there's more of a movement of goods. This is our focus every single day. There isn't the same issue in every single sector, but every meeting I'm in, he's pressing for the economic team and others to do more. And that's what the American people should know. So, Jen, you probably know this, but it just happened in the last few minutes uh, that a watchdog group here in, in D.C., Crew, which is generally, I would say, fair to, it would be fair to characterize them as left-leaning, that they filed a complaint against you. They alleged that you endorsed Democratic gubernatorial candidate in Virginia, Terry McAuliffe, from the podium uh, in the race uh, yesterday. H here's what you said. Let's play that. 
Look, I think the president, of course, um, wants former Governor McAuliffe to be the future governor of Virginia. We're going to do everything we can uh, to help uh, former Governor McAuliffe, and we believe in the agenda he's, he's representing. Now, you also said in that quote that you had to be careful about how far you went, but Cruz says you still went too far. wanted to give you an opportunity to respond. Well, I appreciate that, Jake, and I take ethics seriously. So does this president, of course. As I understand it, if I had said he instead of we, uh, that would not have been uh, an issue at all. Um, And I'll be more careful with my words next time. Words certainly matter. All right, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki, we appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jake. We have breaking news coming up in our health lead. Stay with us for the latest on booster shots for people who got the J&J COVID vaccine, plus former President Bill Clinton in the hospital for an infection. And we're now learning more about his phone call with his successor, President Biden. Stay with us. In our health lead, one and not done yet for the 15 million people in the U.S. that got the single-dose Johnson & Johnson vaccine. A key FDA panel just unanimously approved a second shot. And for the unvaccinated, frankly, the numbers don't lie. CNN's Nick Watt dives into new CDC data that unequivocally shows that those refusing COVID vaccines should really reconsider. We do have um, 19 out of 19 unanimous uh, yes votes. FDA advisors just agreed with Johnson & Johnson. A second dose of their vaccine is a good idea. It will increase efficacy against severe disease. It will increase efficacy against all symptomatic COVID. And it will increase the breadth of the immune response against variants. And they say adults should get that second shot at least two months after the first. Now, Johnson & Johnson says their vaccine's protection against severe disease and death remains robust. But a VA study found that back in March, vaccine protection against all infection was high across all the vaccines. By August, there was erosion. And look at Johnson & Johnson. Fell from 88% to just 3 I think this, frankly, was always a two-dose vaccine. I think it's better as a two-dose vaccine. More than 9 million Americans have already had a booster. Great, but this isn't. More people are getting a booster every day than getting their first shot. And unvaccinated adults are 19 times more likely to be hospitalized and 11 times more likely to die. I urge everyone who's eligible for vaccines to, to get them. In Chicago, starting tonight, cops must submit to testing or prove they're vaccinated. Their union says half haven't had the shots. But even the ones that are still, like myself, believe that a forced mandate is absolutely wrong. What we've seen from uh, the Fraternal Order of Police, and particularly the leadership, is a lot of misinformation, a lot of half-truths, and frankly, flat-out lies, in order to induce an insurrection. Uh, And we're not having that. Finally, good news for the U.S. tourist trade. November 8th, fully vaccinated foreigners can enter this country. This policy is guided by public health, says the White House, stringent and consistent. Now, of course, the CDC still needs to weigh weigh in on those Johnson & Johnson uh, second shots. And a lot of people are going to be hoping sooner rather than later. 14 million Americans got the Johnson and Johnson and with that two month time frame about 90% of them could soon be eligible for a second.
Jake. All right, Nick Watt, as always, excellent. Thank you so much. Chicago's Mayor Lori Lightfoot will join us live in the 5 p.m. hour of The Lead for more on that story. But right now, let's talk to Dr. Ashish Jha. He's the dean of the Brown University School of Public Health. Dr. Jha, what's your take on the FDA Advisory Committee decision on the Johnson & Johnson booster? Yeah, Jake, thanks for having me back. I think it was clearly the right call. It wasn't, clearly wasn't a close call, right, 19 to 0. Uh, J&J is a very good vaccine. Uh, I also believe it's probably a two-shot vaccine. Uh, probably one is not enough. And everybody who's had one needs a second one uh, two months after the first. Uh, They're they going to get full protection if they do that. As you saw in Nick's piece, a, a VA study shows a shocking drop in vaccine effectiveness when they looked at veterans who had gotten uh, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. In March, protection against infection was 88% for the J&J dose. By August, it had dropped to three percent, do we risk losing lives if the CDC doesn't approve this extra dose immediately? Yeah, so no doubt about it. CDC needs to move quickly. The way I see it is, first of all, that's against infection. You still have good protection against hospitalizations and deaths, but not enough. So we do need to move quickly on that second shot. You know, that drop is a combination of waning immunity and the Delta variant. Given that Delta variant's out there and, and the, the dominant variant now, it's really urgent that people go get that second shot pretty quickly. Yeah, let me let me just underline what you just said, that the 88 to percent to 3 percent for the J&J, that's about infection. That's not death. I just want to make sure it's about whether or not you get infected, not hospitalized or, or, or killed. Let's just underline that. Um, so, Dr. John, mix and match boosters were also discussed today by the FDA Advisory Committee. It was not formally voted on. This is the idea of you get the Pfizer vaccine and then you get the booster from Moderna or vice versa. Um, will it be uh, a big deal if anyone can get any booster at their pharmacy, regardless of what their initial uh, vaccination was? Yeah, so we have a little bit of data on this, Jake. And, and the data so far suggests that if you got a Moderna or a Pfizer initially, uh, there's probably not a huge benefit to switching to the other one. Um, so you can, there's no downside, but there's probably not much upside either. The, the data seems to suggest that for J&J, a second shot with J&J is good, but a second shot with a Moderna or a Pfizer may be better. And I emphasize maybe because we have small studies on this. I would have actually loved to have seen the FDA panel weigh in on this a bit more formally. Uh, we, that may end up becoming a thing where J&J people get a second shot from something else. Uh, but for Moderna and Pfizer vaccinated people, I don't think it's a, there's any major advantage to switching. Anyone out there who isn't vaccinated or who has a close friend or family member who isn't vaccinated, I want you to, to pay extra attention to this question. As you also heard in Nick's report, there is new CDC data from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention showing that unvaccinated adults are 11 times more likely to die from COVID than vaccinated adults and six times more likely to get the virus. The numbers seem pretty clear. We're talking about hundreds of thousands, millions of individuals. Uh, how would you suggest talking to a friend or loved one who is still hesitant? Yeah, this is, I mean, the data here is overwhelming. The CDC data confirms what we've been seeing. You know, 85,000 Americans died between August and September of this year from this virus. Almost all of them were unvaccinated. As we get into the fall and winter, the thing I remind people, all of us are going to encounter the Delta variant up close and personal at some point. Much, much better to do it with a vaccine-induced immunity that's going to hold you in better stead. And it's not just about you. It's about spreading it to others and getting other people sick. So it really is our most urgent challenge to get unvaccinated people their shots. And while you're there, get the flu shot as well. Dr. Ashish Jha, thank Absolutely. you so much. Appreciate it. Coming up next, a controversial Trump-era policy that the Biden administration is being forced to revive. We'll explain next. Next. 
And our politics lead now in the hotly contested race for Virginia's governor. Obviously, every vote counts. It looks like it will be a squeaker. To help secure a victory, the candidates must win over a key demographic, Latinos, who make up 11% of the population of the Commonwealth. Both Democrat Terry McAuliffe and Republican Glenn Youngkin are spending big on outreach in Spanish-language media campaigns. McAuliffe trying to boost Democratic support by painting Youngkin as a Trump wannabe. Youngkin rejects that label. For some Latino voters, it might actually work in his favor, frankly. But as Boris Sanchez reports for us now, red or blue, many Latino voters care less about the courting and more about what happens after the election. We got Peru, Nicaragua, In the hotly contested Virginia governor's race, you're El Salvador, right? Retail politics means shopping for café at Todo Supermarket. Mingling with dozens of workers and customers and the owner, Carlos Castro. You guys voted yet? Democrat Terry McAuliffe going to great lengths to court Latino voters amid signs of a potential shift in the reliably Democratic-leaning demographic. It's critical that I get the Hispanic vote out here. With Latinos making up roughly 11% of the Commonwealth's population, Democrats see Virginia as a test. They're sick of Trump. They don't want to go back and they don't want a Trump wannabe uh, coming into this governorship here. Though President Biden won nearly two-thirds of Latinos nationwide in 2020, former President Donald Trump outperformed expectations, leading Republicans to substantial gains across the country, including in Virginia, where he gained six points among Latino voters. Uno eh, a veces hace cambios, ¿no? Cuando ve que no se cumplen ciertas promesas. While the McCullough campaign is going after his Republican opponent, Glenn Youngkin, for emulating Trump, to some voters, that is the appeal. Raul Velasco says he's worried about illegal immigration and crime. If it might seem wrong for other people, but if they said that Youngkin is more like a Trump, I'm 100% with him. Let us come together to celebrate the mark that Hispanic and Latino Virginians have left on our state. Eager to replicate Trump's success, Glenn Youngkin visited Todos Grocery last month and has held more than 20 outreach events targeting Latino voters. His campaign also investing in Spanish-language advertising and social media. An effort that's impressed Daniel P. Cortez, a politically independent Vietnam vet who voted for McAuliffe in 2013, but voted Trump in 2020 and now is the co-chair of Latinos for Youngkin. This is not about race. I'm tired dealing with racial politics in the previous election and this election. Voters are tired. They're going to vote their pocketbooks. Votemos por adelantado por el demócrata Terry McAuliffe para gobernador. Democrats have increased their own outreach, launching a six-figure Spanish-language media campaign on television, radio, and online, along with dozens of community events, attempting to sway the undecided, like Carlos Castro, who's a former undocumented immigrant turned entrepreneur. He now owns a local supermarket chain employing hundreds, he says his values align with Republicans, but he says extremist rhetoric and discrimination toward immigrants like him have turned him away. Then lately, after having all this bad treatment from all the Republican establishment, a lot of us have been forced to, uh, to support candidates that, that shows you know, that they care about the community. And Jake, both campaigns tell me that they are planning similar outreach events, not just over the weekend, but 
all the way through Election Day. And as you noted, several voters that I spoke with in the community say they are going to be vigilant about what happens once all the ballots are counted and whether these candidates remain focused on the concerns of the Latino community and their contributions to the country as a whole. Jake. All right, Boris, thanks so much. Also in our politics lead, the Biden administration is making plans to adopt a controversial Trump-era policy on immigration, one that the Biden administration had tried to get rid of, but then they lost a recent court battle. A federal judge accused the Biden administration of improperly terminating that policy, so the administration is now saying it will recommence forcing migrants seeking asylum to stay in Mexico, often in squalid and possibly dangerous conditions, at least until a U.S. immigration court can hear their individual cases. It's a process that critics point out can take months, if not years. CNN's Priscilla Alvarez is here to explain. So, Priscilla, what are Biden administration officials saying about this? They say they don't agree with this policy, but they have to comply with the court order. And so they are moving to re-implement it. And they said in a court filing last night that they are prepared to do that in mid-November, assuming that Mexico agrees to terms because these migrants will have to stay in Mexico until their court date. Immigrant advocacy groups aren't buying it. And we are now learning that immigrant advocacy groups and service provider blasted Biden officials in a call today about reviving this policy. Sources tell me it was an emotionally charged call. It was a frustrating call, particularly as they recalled the conditions that these migrants were in and the danger to their lives. And one source said, quote, there's no trust. So tensions are boiling over here over the potential of a second Trump era border policy taking effect next month. So Vice President Harris uh, was put in charge of trying to stem the flow of migrants from uh, Central America. What does she have to say about this? She's always said that her focus is on root causes of migration, specifically in three countries, Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras. But what we have seen over the last few months is that there are flows from South America now that are overwhelming the administration. And a perfect example of this is Del Rio, Texas, where we saw thousands of migrants, primarily Haitians, underneath the bridge. And they came from South America, not Central America. So officials are going back to the drawing board. They're trying to find ways to solve this. One of the ideas is connecting migrants to economic opportunities in the region. The State Department is running ads to try to deter people from coming to the U.S. southern border. So an immense challenge for this administration, while Harris tries to make inroads in those three countries through her private partnerships. And then, Priscilla, the Homeland Security Department, Security Department's facing criticism. There was a watchdog report on how ICE uh, handles solitary confinement inside immigration detention facilities. Tell us about that. The IG found, quite simply, that ICE was not tracking adequately the use of solitary confinement in their detention centers. They provided recommendations like updating their policies and finding ways to make sure that they are recording these instances in an appropriate way. ICE says that they agree with those recommendations and will work toward enhancing their policies. All right, Priscilla Alvarez, uh, thank you so much. Uh, Really appreciate it. What put President Bill Clinton in the hospital? Coming up next, how he ended up in intensive care. And what did he tell President Biden about his condition? That's next. Stay with us. In our national lead now, a health scare for former President Bill Clinton. He has been hospitalized since Tuesday for a urinary tract infection that doctors say spread to his bloodstream. CNN Sarah Seidner is outside the University of California Irvine Medical Center located near L.A. And Sarah, the former president, still undergoing treatment. What are doctors saying about his condition? He's 
better. Uh, he's in quite a good mood, according to uh, his spokesman. He's reading a couple of books while in the hospital, and he's joking, and he's actually been able to walk around as well. Um, and so they're saying, look, he, he is doing better, although we're not sure uh, just how good, because he's still here in the hospital, in the ICU, although we should be clear that the ICU is simply because it's a more private space and a place that is more secure than the rest of the hospital. Uh, we know that he came in on Tuesday night. He came in because he was feeling fatigued. Uh, doctors determined that he did have a urinary tract infection. That infection spread to his bloodstream, which is basically sepsis, which can be fatal if not treated. Uh, and so they're paying a lot of attention, trying to make sure uh, that he is going to be okay. But so far, we're hearing from his spokespeople that he is doing well uh, and that he is, certainly feels better. And it's just a bit annoyed that he has to be in the hospital because he could be out here in the sunny California sun. <laughs> right. Uh, Sarah, do, do we know when he's expected to be released? Uh, we understood that he was going to be released today, but we are now hearing that he actually may have to stay in just a bit longer. Doctors want to observe him for a little bit more. Uh, but tomorrow may be the day that President, former President Bill Clinton is able to, to come out of the hospital. We Sarah, know also that his wife, Hillary Clinton, visited. We watched her walk in uh, to see her husband. Jake. Sarah Seidner, thank you so much. We're glad he's on the men. Let's bring in CNN special correspondent. Jamie Gangal. And Jamie, you, you were the first to report that former President uh, Clinton was in, under this condition. Take us behind the scenes into his health scare. He's 75 years old, not, not a spring chicken anymore. He's 75 years old, but this is actually not uncommon for people who are older to have a UTI infection. You don't have pain. You don't have symptoms. It goes unnoticed, and then all of a sudden it becomes sepsis. Two things to clarify. Why are they keeping him in the hospital? A lot of these infections require IV antibiotics. You can't just go. Intravenous. Intravenous yeah. antibiotics. So, and that would be a three to five day course. I know someone who had a seven day course in my family. So it's not at all unusual or alarming that they're keeping him there uh, another day or maybe a couple more Better days. Better safe than sorry, sure. Correct. He is in a very good mood. He is reading Colson Whitehead's Harlem Shuffle. Hillary Clinton, I'm told, is still there. And he had an interesting phone call with President Biden today. Uh, I think in addition to the president wishing him well, guess what the two of them talked about? Politics. Right. No, I'm sure. And uh, what race is coming up? Virginia. Right. I, I'm told that they discussed at some length uh, Terry McAuliffe, who was the chairman of both uh, Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton's campaign, former DNC chairman, that the two men had uh, a discussion about how that race is going. Bill Clinton, younger than Joe Biden, I might, I might That's true. observe. Um, if, uh, he did, if there were no symptoms initially, then how, what happened? Like, how did he have to get rushed to the hospital? So you may remember that uh, in April 2018, the day after Barbara Bush died, former President Bush, 41, was rushed to the hospital. The same thing had happened to him. There were no symptoms, and then all of a sudden, he wasn't feeling well, and, and he had sepsis. In this case, what we know is that Tuesday... He wasn't feeling well. The words were very fatigued. Hmm. He really must not have been feeling well for them to bring him to the hospital. They did the tests and they discovered the infection. Very important. Listen to your body. Our beloved colleague, uh, Casey Hunt, just had a brain tumor removed. It was benign. She's fine. But she just put out a tweet 
listen to your body. Right. Amy Gangal, thank you so much. Sure. Really appreciate it. We're live on the scene after a British lawmaker is murdered while meeting with voters. What we know about the suspect, that's next. In our world lead, British counterterrorism police are leading the investigation into today's fatal stabbing of a member of the British Parliament. As CNN's Nick Robertson reports, Conservative Party member of Parliament David Amos was meeting with his constituents when he was attacked. Known as a kind and gentle man, 69-year-old Sir David Amos had been a member of Parliament for more than half his life. His brutal killing shocking the nation from the Prime Minister. Hola. Hearts are full of shock and sadness. Amos's constituents. It was just awful. It was just, he's such a kind, gentle soul. Amos died while helping his community, meeting face to face with voters, a so called constituency surgery, answering queries, solving problems, listening to gripes. Police say they received a call about a stabbing around noon. They were on the scene at the church within minutes. But they say Amos had been stabbed multiple times and the emergency services couldn't save him. A knife was found at the scene and a 25-year-old man arrested. Police say they are not looking for anyone else at this time. The investigation is in its very early stages and is being led by officers from the Specialist Counterterrorism Command. His killing is the first of a sitting MP since Labour's Joe Cox was shot and stabbed by a man with extreme right-wing views five years ago. From across the political spectrum and beyond, the outpouring of affection for Amos, a traditional conservative with a love of animals in the environment, has been huge. He was much respected. He had that profound sense of duty, was driven by his faith. Um, And that's why um, across the parties, across Parliament, he was so respected and so liked. And there's a very profound sense of loss, I think, across politics, across faith and up and down the country. He leaves a wife and five children. Sir David Amos, dead at 69. And of course, this really is reigniting the debate, Jake, about how safe British MPs are when when they meet face to face with their constituents. Yeah, it was five years ago that British MP uh, Joe Cox was uh, was murdered in a similar type situation. We've gotten no word on a motive yet for this 25 year old man who's been uh, arrested or or taken uh, by uh, police. How are police working to track down a motive? Well, you know, I think some of the details that we do know, uh, and they're very slender, I have to say, that is uh, the man was taken alive. Um, it's not the situation where he, he stabbed the MP and was shot and killed on the scene. It's taken alive. So um, the police will be able to question him, uh, no doubt try to get from him his motives, where he lived, who his friends were, who his associates were. When you bring in the counterterrorism command, they bring in a huge package, if you will, of, of assets that can rapidly troll through social media, can rapidly try to sort of map out associates of this person to form a a, a better picture of who this person was. Was it someone who was quite simply deranged uh, or is this someone with other motives? So this is what the police will be doing right now. And Nick, I have to say, two members of parliament murdered 
in five years, uh, lawmakers there must be very worried about threats to their safety. You know, Sir David Amos was as well. After Joe Cox was killed, he'd actually written about his concerns. He said this really does sort of, you know, rather has rather spoiled, his words, rather spoiled the great British tradition of meeting face-to-face with, with constituents. So even he was concerned, and he'd raised questions in Parliament with Boris Johnson just uh, earlier this year about knife crime. What was the government going to do about knife crime, about reducing the killings from knife crime? So he was very cognizant and aware of it, and a lot of other MPs are, and this really will send a chill. Uh, but we've heard from the, you know, the Speaker of the House today saying that even he, con- even he today continued meeting constituency members as he has always done. It's a strong tradition, and, and politicians are really going to want to keep it going. Um, but the police are going to have a view on it too. Yeah, that's a real tragedy. May he rest in peace. Nick Robertson, thanks so much. Nobody is off limits. That's the warning from the chair of the House Committee investigating the insurrection. Could Donald Trump himself get a subpoena? Stay with us.